Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I'm Jeff Rubin. Today I'm speaking with Robert Still, Executive Director of the Radiology Business Management Association, or RBMA. Bob has been involved in the organization since 1992, serving as past president, member of the Board of Directors and Federal Affairs Committee, and in 2013 receiving the organization's highest honor, the Calhoun Award, for contributions to radiology business management and the association. For 22 years, Bob was practice manager of Lancaster Radiology Associates, a 30-physician radiology practice. More recently, he was Chief Executive Officer of Brain Orthopedic Spine Specialists, an eight-physician multi-specialty neurosurgical, orthopedic, neurology, and interventional pain management practice in central Pennsylvania. He also served as Chief Clerk, the Chief Administrative Officer of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Bob has an extensive background in community service, having served in the Delaware State Senate from 1986 to 1990, as president of the Hempfield School District Board of School Directors, past president of the Rotary Club of Lancaster, and on numerous boards of community organizations. In early 2020, Bob launched his own podcast, A Word with Bob. In it, he shares insightful conversations with various leaders and changemakers in radiology and healthcare at large. Bob, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be with you this morning. We like to get a sense of where our guests came from in their formative years. And so I'd like to start at the beginning and ask you, where were you born and raised? Well, I was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana and raised there. I am a native and proud Hoosier. I graduated from Indiana University after kind of a misstart at the University of Maryland. But I met my wife, Barb, at the University of Maryland when I was a freshman there and we fell in love and got married four years later. And I grew up in a very large Irish Catholic family. My mother was a Kelly, so you can imagine how many cousins I have and still keep in contact with many of them. That's fantastic. How about brothers and sisters? How many of them did you have? There were seven kids in our family. I was number five. My parents, maybe it was pretty typical, kind of had four kids right after the war. And then there were several years and had three more. And I'm the oldest of kind of the second crew, four girls and three boys. And we've all been close. Most are back in the Midwest. I'm the only East Coaster, and there's five of us left, and you get closer after you lose one. We lost our sister this past year, and it seems to drive you a lot closer. Yeah. I imagine it was a busy household growing up with all these kids and such. (laughs) What, What did your parents do for a living? Well, my parents were both teachers. My father grew up in Southern Indiana on a farm. First person, and I think the only person in his family, to go to college. And his older sister convinced him to become a teacher. He went to Evansville College, which is now Evansville University, got a teaching degree. Then he and two other guys heard there were jobs way up in Fort Wayne, you know, way at the tip of the other side of the state. They went up there, and that was like 1939, and met my mother teaching junior high school. The word was they were in a teacher skit or something, and he kissed her during the skit, you know, and that was the big deal. So kind of a cool love story. That was the moment that brought them together, huh? Yeah, yeah. So mom didn't teach while she was raising all of us in this big family. 
And then went back to teaching, you know, kind of after everybody was out of the house and taught home economics. You mentioned that you attended Indiana University and you earned a bachelor's degree in education. You know, having two parents who were teachers, was that in your mind at that moment that you wanted to go into teaching? Well, what's interesting was I originally was a major in a new school there called Public and Environmental Affairs. What's fascinating is our youngest son went to Indiana University and he majored in School of Public and Environmental Affairs, so it really grew since then. But I've always had this interest in nonprofit management and service. But for me, it just kind of clicked the School of Education and the desire to teach and walk around, manage. <laughs> I came out of IU. Barbara and I got married. We lived outside of Baltimore. Barbara's from Baltimore. I have three siblings that were in education. My brother was a college basketball coach and administrator then later in his career and actually three sisters now in education. So everybody's kind of teaching. We have a daughter that's a school administrator in Fairfax County, Virginia, an assistant principal, elementary principal. Her husband's a teacher. Really proud of her that, you know, she's a fourth-generation teacher, so it's really some gene in there that we like to stand up and teach. So thinking back, as deep back into your childhood as you can imagine, what do you recall was your first experience as a leader? Oh, Wow. You know, I took piano for several years, and growing up, you know, it'd always be that piano recital. For leaders, I think it's important that you're able to stand up and lead. That's one of the ways I overcame my fear of getting up in front of people and doing something, speaking with the piano. You know, that was one. With classmates and such, you know, I served on student council and those types of things. In high school, I was in an organization called Key Club, which is, at the time, just a boys, men's Kiwanis club. I became governor of the state of Indiana of Key Club, the district. So I've just always kind of aspired to say, hey, I think I can do better than that other person that's leading and step up and volunteer. Volunteering was a big aspect of our lives. My parents always volunteered, and they were inspirational in that way. No doubt. Their volunteerism served as a great example for you. And there's an adage that leaders are born, and then there's other people who will say, no, you know, leaders are not born, leaders are trained. What is your perspective on that? Are you a born leader? I think I have some attributes of leadership that I was born with. I really do. My grandfather and great-grandfather, Kelly, in Fort Wayne were business and community leaders. And in my extended Kelly family, we have folks that have led in a lot of different levels. So I find that interesting. There must be something in our genes. I have a cousin that's a state representative in Indiana. He's currently the minority leader in the state of Indiana. Phil Giaquinta is his name. I have another cousin, Molly Kelly, who was a state senator in New Hampshire and then ran for governor. I was a state senator. We have a lot of family that have been on boards and leaders and what they did. My brother was a division chair at his college. You know, I can go down the list. So yeah, for me, it kind of points to you're kind of born to be a leader. But well, yeah, either that or perhaps just being around a lot of leaders when you're growing up rubs off, yeah, you know, yeah. and that's fantastic. So once you graduated IU, what did you start doing right after graduation? I taught sixth grade social studies in Randallstown, Maryland, in a small Catholic school back in 1976. And I had this theory, and I asked a retired superintendent about this. I said, look, at during the Vietnam War, which I was on the tail end of, I had a draft number, but they stopped drafting for men that were born in 1953. So I didn't have to experience that. But you could get a teaching deferment. And I said to this retired superintendent, I said, look, at you were in the war. You went, yes. You know, I said, now... Did you have a lot of friends that became teachers? He goes, yes. 
I said, and then you became an educator, an administrator. I said, how were they later in their career? He said they were miserable. They never really wanted to be teachers, but it was the way out of Vietnam. So in 76, there were no public school teaching jobs. They were just full, you know. I was fortunate enough to get a job at the Holy Family School. I was the only male teacher in eight grades, so that was quite an experience. I immediately became a leader for no other reason than I was the only male there. So if there was a fight on the playground, guess who they called? <laughs> and other things, but I enjoyed it. And then three years later, I was kind of recruited, but I had an opportunity to go work for the Archdiocese of Baltimore at what we affectionately called the Power Tower in downtown Baltimore. And I became part of the Office of Youth Ministry and I was one of five people that developed youth programs in Catholic parishes around the Archdiocese of Baltimore. But my real job was I was like the commissioner of CYO Athletics. So that was a big deal. Every Monday morning, I had to weigh in on disputes <laughs> from the games over the weekend. But it was a great job. It sounds like it would be fun. You enjoyed getting involved in athletics and sports? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I grew up in the 50s and 60s, a great heady time. I mean, there was always a baseball or basketball game or football game in the front yard that we were doing. So for me, it was kind of a natural thing. And I worked on this team of all men at the time, but they were just a great team. There was a priest that ran the retreat house, a gentleman that was kind of a social service guy on the team, an organizational development guy, myself, and then the leader. And we would go around and train parish youth groups, both the kids and the adults, on how to run a good organization. I learned so much about organizational development at the time. So it was a really good formative thing. And then just a couple of years later, I had a friend in the association management business, and he worked for an organization called Associated Builders and Contractors. He was their national membership director, and he kind of recruited me to go to work for them at one of their chapters in Michigan. So I did. Interesting pivot. I mean, here you are in education, you're working with youth, you're getting to engage around sports, and you're the commissioner, and then it just seems like a 90-degree turn. What was the attraction? Well, the attraction was probably double my salary. You know, working for the Catholic Church, your reward is in heaven. The opportunity to go back to the Midwest for a bit, Barb wasn't too excited about it, but she was ready for an adventure. And I really enjoyed the broader kind of nonprofit management. That is the thing to me that was kind of exciting. You know, working for a board of directors directly, that was challenging, but I've done that really my whole career and served on boards. What is it about the nonprofit sector that you found particularly attractive? I think there's opportunities there to kind of really turn on your creative genius. And the other thing for me, I really enjoy the people. I found for-profit sometimes when you're a leader, it can be somewhat isolated, but in association management, you know, there's always meetings, there's always conferences, committees to manage, and groups of people, probably because I grew up with a group of people around the dinner table every night, really do something for me. Do you think that the sense of mission that is associated with nonprofit organizations takes on a greater level of importance for folks when compared to a for-profit organization? No, I think it does. You know, I knew what my role was with Lancaster Radiology Associates. It was two things. I wanted to make sure those radiologists, when they were sitting at that reading station, were focused and didn't have to focus on anything else. So I always thought one of my roles was to make sure I can clean up all the litter around them so that they're focused on that study, no matter whether it was a two-view chest X-ray or a complicated CT. 
And then at the end of the month, we had to make sure there was enough money for everybody to get paid. So those two things were the two most critical things. Because in radiology, when your billing goes bad, you got a real problem. You find out real quick what your mission is. But in nonprofit management, to me, one of the most invigorating things for me is to sit with a board and do some kind of blue sky and strategic planning. I really love that because it's really interesting when you remove all the shackles, what may come out of that? You know, what do we want to look like in five years? What's our real mission? Those types of things. So it's pretty exciting. And the other thing, and I have seen this throughout my whole career, there's opportunities to really be inspirational to people in association or nonprofit management, which, I mean, obviously there are inspirational leaders in for-profit sector, but I have found that opportunity as a leader to do that in nonprofit to be really exciting. I'm gathering that you enjoy school because I've noticed that you enrolled in university educational programs in each of four consecutive decades. Oh, yeah. I want to ask you about them in turn as we work through our conversation, starting with the fact that four years out of your bachelor's degree, you attended Notre Dame University for an organizational management program. And then a couple of years later, you were at the University of Delaware as well. And what were you studying there? I was thinking about that this morning. That was a program sponsored in the 80s and 90s. I don't think they still carry it, but the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the American Society of Association Executives had what they called the Institute for Organizational Management. They held them at University of Delaware, Notre Dame, and I think University of Colorado. It was a one-week summer program. You went in residence, and it was a six-year program. I completed three years of it, but it was very inspirational, very formative in my association experience. And you were put into a class, the class of whatever, and you got to know those people. And it was a great networking opportunity, but also just a really good basic training for just not only of how to run a meeting, you know, how to run a conference to governance and ethics. And it was a really a great program. What led you into it? And at what point in this journey were you there? I attended my first one When I was working for ABC in Michigan, and then when I moved to the Delaware chapter of ABC to start that organization, I obviously went to a couple of years at the University of Delaware. So it must have been 1980, I was at Notre Dame, and then the next couple of years, I was in Delaware. Of course, ABC is Association of Builders and Contractors, not Alcohol Beverage Control. Yeah, Associated Builders and Contractors, they're an organization still obviously around, growing strong, founded back in the late 60s as an alternative to union commercial construction. So our members were non-union contractors. I got to be involved in some interesting labor disputes and scenes that no one would ever think you would be involved with. The building trade unions back in the day could be pretty mean. And I've had an opportunity to be escorted through picket lines and have had eggs thrown at me and things like that. But I probably have come around to think probably more like the building trades than I did back then. But, you know, for me, it was a job. It was a career. And I loved these contractors who all got up every morning and, you know, their lives depended on bid day. Could they sharpen their pencil enough? They were just great entrepreneurs. And I've stayed connected with many of them over the years. And I'm really proud that ABC of Delaware just had their 40th anniversary and I started the organization That was just a lot of fun, very interesting leadership opportunity for me. When I started in Delaware in 1981, there were 10 members of the organization. They all put in $1,000. They had this kitty, and they were paying me $35,000 a year, so I knew what I had to do. (laughs) 
And when I left 13 years later, 14 years later, there were 200 and some members and they're still going strong. <laughs> that is fantastic. Now, you were elected to the Delaware State Senate for a four-year term back in 1986. What led you to seek political office? Well, Governor Mike Castle did. <laughs> when the governor asked you to go to breakfast at the green room in the Hotel Pot, you know you're in trouble. I was like 31 years old. And when Pete DuPont was governor of Delaware, he served as two terms. And so it's an open seat. So I said to our board of ABC, I said, you know, guys, you should get involved in this election. And Mike Castle, who was the lieutenant governor, you know, I think he's going to win. And I had some connections with Mike Castle's chief of staff, whose wife was real involved with ABC. We had done a project. ABC is built around chapters that feed into a national organization. And at the time, they assessed every chapter a per member number, and our number was $40,000. So we built a house in 10 days and sold it and made $40,000. And it was a big project. It was called the house that Skill built, and it was a big deal. A lot of good press. And the local power company, Delmarva Power at the time, I don't know what they're called now, but they very much supported it. So I got to meet and connect with the governor's chief of staff. And, you know, one thing leads to another. So I said to our board, I said, you know, we should have a fundraiser for Mike Castle. Oh, how would we do that? I said, well, we'll have a breakfast and we're going to sell 100 tickets at 50 bucks a piece and raising 5,000. Okay. So in Delaware, you can raise corporate dollars for state elections. It's really easy to raise money. So, you know, sold 100 tickets. What's the big deal? It's just another breakfast, you know. Two years later, the seat where I lived opened up. The senator retired and told everybody, you're not going to be able to elect a Republican because, you know, that's useless because the Republicans don't control the Senate, you know. And he was a Republican. So I was recruited by the governor to run for this seat. That's a pretty heady experience. <laughs> I had no idea what I was getting into. And they went all out, the governor's team, just, you know, it's basically, hey, we got to win this seat and still can raise money. So the test for any candidate is, can you raise money? Can they bring money to the table? Well, I could. I had these builders. And boy, we're going to elect a non-union kind of guy. We're going to fight the unions. So we have this huge battle. The unions hated me. Even though I was such a nice guy, they hated me. In Delaware, you go door to door went door to door with the governor all summer. You knock on doors, you go to parades. My poor kids went to more festivals. At the point, they got tired. <laughs> no more balloons, dad. <laughs> and Barb was a wonderful campaign leader. We had a really good volunteer team. And we won by 111 votes. Oh. <laughs> and so, you know, all the talk nationally of, oh, you know, I can tell you it's all baloney. The year I won, you know, we're all nervous. Is there going to be a recount? And I remember the governor's chief of staff, Mike Ratchford, said, oh, don't worry, you weren't the closest race. In Delaware, there are very close elections, unless you're around for redistricting, which the end of the story is four years later. But unless you're around for redistricting, you can't draw your safe district. And I had an evenly split Democrat-Republican district. So it was a really phenomenal experience. And I was kind of adopted by the governor's team and helped put in key committees it sounds like you had some wind at your sails. I did. I did. And just really loved every minute of it. That was the first Bush administration term. So I got to meet people that every day Joe doesn't get to meet. Four years later, the unions woke up. 
there was pretty much a union holiday in and around Wilmington, Delaware, and Philadelphia to beat me, and I lost by 400 votes. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> wow. At one time, I was going to be the next governor of Delaware in my leadership career, but that didn't work. And then the rest is history. And the rest is history. So yeah. if people lose elections, I'm like, yeah, I know what they're going through. Yeah, it sounds like you did. So I want to ask you a little bit about some of what you did while you were in the Senate. Amongst your committee work for the state, you served on the Capital Budget Committee, determining the capital budget for the entire state. Having served on Capital Budget Committees at three academic medical centers myself, I'm fascinated by how differently this critical topic is approached from organization to organization. I'm curious, how were decisions made in the state's Senate, and what was the magnitude of requests relative to available funding? In Delaware, the two key financial committees are there's a joint finance committee, which is the budget committee. They call it the bond bill committee. They are joint Senate House committees, and they are split according to party majority. So when I was there, the Senate's had a strong majority in the Senate, so I was in a minority party. The House was controlled by Republicans. So there were 12 members of the committee evenly split. So you had to be very bipartisan. The glory of Delaware, I mean, we've all heard it with President Biden, you know, well, it's Delaware politics. Well, that is true. I mean, I experienced it. So yeah, deciding priorities. So first of all, the Department of Transportation drives all of that because it's all about highway funding and dollars that are flowing from the federal government, highway trust funds, et cetera. So that's one of the things that really drives it. And then in Delaware at the time, is every cabinet secretary would, you know, make pitches. And the governor's office really were the drivers of both the budget and the capital budget in terms of, well, we need a new building for children and youth services. Why do you need that? You know, blah, blah, blah. That's really how it all came together. The legislators were all given a certain amount of money that they could use in their district for curb and gutter, drainage, sidewalks, little projects, you know, in a neighborhood. And I actually think that's probably a pretty good way to do it. I know in a lot of states, everybody, oh, that's terrible. That's a slush fund. Well, you know what your district needs because you should be there walking around and driving around. And there are needs that otherwise may never percolate up if it was all one system. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, it sounds like you're giving the districts an allowance as opposed to having everybody compete their favorite pork barrel project. Oh, yeah. So I kind of understand this infrastructure conversation that we're having nationally. And it is and can be very, very political, but there are certain things you can't deny. Sooner or later, you got to replace your roof and you better be prepared to do it. 1989 saw you negotiating a budget compromise where revenues fell to $35 million. $35 million for the entire state. There were almost 700,000 people in Delaware in 1989. That's $50 per person. What happened? I mean, in today's dollars, a 40 radiologist practice would easily clear that revenue value. Yeah, Delaware had a commission form of government until fairly recently. So Joe Biden beat Governor Boggs in 1972 by 1,100 votes. Everybody liked Senator Boggs. He was the most popular politician in Delaware, and he was governor. So back when he was governor, it was a commission form of government. So there was a transportation commissioner who was like the czar of all the roads. And that's really how that ran. It was almost a volunteer thing. The governor didn't have really as much power as governors do today. So I served 14 years later. So they were still kind of coming out of that commission form of government. There was a senator I served with, great guy. His dad was the transportation commissioner, you know, so he still looked at his district as kind of this fiefdom, you know. How does that lead to there being such a low amount of state revenues for allocation? You know, Delaware's a very small state, three counties. 
small state kind of small needs. In the Senate, we had 21 senators, eight Republicans. Our caucus was basically a room with a bunch of partisans. We had one staff person. So that gives you an idea of the size of the government at the time. And in Delaware, the state really controlled all of the salaries of state employees, but also teachers. Even though there was a lot of payroll, it's a small government, very controllable. I assume that taxes must have been very low at the time. Well, the income tax is high in Delaware compared to states around it. When Pete DuPont was elected governor, state income tax was 19%. So as soon as you retired from the DuPont company, you moved out of the state of Delaware. (laughs) That was the deal. Revenues were dropping. It was Pete DuPont that developed the Financial Center Development Act that attracted all of the credit card companies to Delaware. So if you look on your credit card, it's Wilmington, Delaware. And it was Pete DuPont that thought of that deal South Dakota was just starting down that track, but everybody knew nobody wanted to go move to South Dakota. So there was a huge influx of Chase Bank, Morgan Stanley. All those banks came down to Delaware to run their credit card operations, and it was a huge boon to the state. And that had just developed when I was elected to the state Senate. So looking back on your time in the state Senate, are there any leadership lessons in particular that you take away from that? My seatmate, Andy Knox, an older senator, he said, you know, Bob, you always got to dance with the woman that brought you to the dance, you know. And when elected officials become leaders, to me, I marvel at those that have been leaders for a long time, because that means they're still in touch with the folks back home. And you have to do things when you're a leader that maybe your constituency don't like, you know. So that's an important lesson. How you are able to Continue to connect with the woman that brought you to the dance is really important. And I think there's lessons there for everybody. I never forgot when I was managing Lancaster Radiology Associates that, hey, you know, it's all about those doctors. When I started with them, I don't think I could spell radiology, but I told them, I said, look, I'll be down every Tuesday or Thursday at lunchtime and I'll have lunch with you. Oh, well, why would you do that? I said, because you're all here. And I need to know about what your issues are. And that was kind of my way, even in that way, to stay in touch with the folks that I was answering to. And it's always been important in my career in leadership to do that. I need to be at our chapters. It's a lot easier now with Zoom than it was two years ago. But that, to me, is a critical lesson in leadership. And it spans all different levels of leadership. An interesting story about Ronald Reagan that I learned when I toured the Reagan Library. Have you ever done that, Jeff? I have not been to the Reagan Library. Well, first of all, the Reagan Library, the first half of it is all about how single-handedly Ronald Reagan defeated communism, which maybe not single-handedly, but that's kind of funny. There's, of course, no mention of his first family. (laughs) Of course, you know, we never hear about that. But one of the really interesting things about, they really get into detail of his life as an actor when General Electric sponsored him you know, they basically said, hey, we want you to go around to our factories and be inspirational. He says that's when I really got turned on to like, oh, this would be kind of interesting to do as a career. Who does that? Oh, politicians do that. Yeah. You know, he'd take the train and talk to the GE factory in Fort Wayne, Indiana. That's very interesting to me. And that's all about touching people. You can do that in some careers. You get a real chance to do that. That's a great point. Yeah. Now, after leaving the Senate, you became the Director for Government and Community Relations at the Medical Center of Delaware. I imagine that you could have had any number of positions with your experience at that point. What led you to healthcare? They had a position open, 
<laughs> By the way, in Delaware, when you're elected to the state Senate, you immediately get on the payroll. And when you lose, you immediately drop off the payroll. <laughs> so I was still working for Associated Builders and Contractors at the time, but I just felt the need to expand my career, expand into a different field. And I really had to decide, was I going to stay on the political track, run again? There were people encouraging me to run again. It's pretty hurtful to lose and lose as close as I did. You know, this opportunity came along, the Medical Center of Delaware, which is a very large institution, 1,000 beds, three hospitals. They were developing their position. It would be their first time they ever had a lobbyist and a government relations person. And it sounded very interesting to me, and I was inspired by their president. So I was recruited and took the position. It was pretty cool. And I thought I should work for a large organization to get to know what that's like to work for a really large organization. Even bigger than the state of Delaware. Oh, yeah, it was. <laughs> you know, it really was. Yeah. And probably more political. <laughs> yeah. How big of an enterprise was the Medical Center of Delaware? You know, Jeff, I don't remember what their annual operating revenues or budget were at the time. But, I mean, you can imagine a thousand beds in their main hospital, tertiary care center, trauma center. They had two other hospitals. So they had a rehab hospital. I mean, it was big. They weren't buying physician practices at that time, but there was a very large residency program in family practice. You know, they had residencies in a number of different areas. So big organization. And I was in the marketing, public affairs and development office. What were some of your more consequential activities? Back in the early 90s, the big debate in healthcare was around uncompensated care at hospitals. So there were a lot of initiatives, both federal and state, around, you know, well, how could we somehow compensate hospitals for uncompensated care? In the state of Delaware, my former colleagues came up with this scheme. The idea is all Medicaid is a federal state sharing of dollars. And so for like every dollar the state puts in, feds match it by maybe 50 cents or something like this. So I got real involved, obviously, with our system president and the Delaware Hospital Association. The state of Delaware wanted to initiate a tax on hospitals for probably per bed, I forget the formula, but it would essentially raise X dollars that would be put into Medicaid, and then the feds would flow with more dollars. Makes sense, right? Except for one thing. I said to the president of our hospital, I said, you know, a tax is a tax is a tax. You can't trust that if everybody agrees to a tax on a nonprofit, you know, non-taxable 501c institution, that they won't raise it. So I organized a campaign to fight the tax. And it was a real basic thing. Get postcards, go down to the hospital cafeterias throughout the state, get employees to fill out a postcard as they're coming in, and we're going to send them. I'll never forget my former colleagues were like, stop it. Stop the postcard. So successful. They never did it. It was an interesting time as I reflect back. That was really at the height of the AIDS epidemic. The Medical Center of Delaware had a big AIDS clinic, very inspirational physician led that trying to get dollars for that, you know, federal dollars. Nobody knew where that was going. It was really scary. We had a very large public health clinic, family practice clinic there, and you get involved federal dollars there. So it was a really great experience. And, you know, anytime a legislator or some official, something happened to him, guess what? I was the guy that had to go visit him. My favorite story there is there was a bank robbery one day at noon at lunchtime in downtown Wilmington, and a cop got shot right in the neck. They rushed him to Christiana hospital. And I said, well, I'm going to go down there. I'm going down there now. <laughs> Somebody said, why? I said, because every politician in the state of Delaware is going to come and check on this guy. And every cop's going to be around and I need to be there. And sure enough, every politician in the state of Delaware came to the ER that day to check on this guy. You know, he, he, the guy survived. He was very lucky. 
No, that is an amazing story. Yeah, you know, you get to behind the scenes, meet some people and kind of direct things. So, yeah. Clearly, you figured out how to be impactful in that role. That's fantastic. Now, after two years, though, you pivoted to become practice manager at Lancaster Radiology Associates, a 32-physician practice. After administrative roles in large organizations, what led you to downsize into such a focus? Well, I was frustrated with the large organization because I I didn't like playing the politics, you know. But I'll tell you what. I like you were good at it. (laughs) (laughs) I was fairly good at it. Yeah. My wife's brother was a radiologist, John Garris. Their practice, which is pretty large back then, it was like 15 or 16, which I still claim is the right size for a physician practice. (laughs) But he called me one day and said, how do you like your job? And I knew I was in trouble. Their business manager had decided to leave. And her responsibility was to manage the business affairs. They did their own billing. They had a hospital contract at Lancaster General Hospital and an imaging center that they had just opened. So it just intrigued me. And what I found out, and the story's been told a lot, is that I had to go through probably a four or five month process of interviewing. And my brother-in-law, who was a behind-the-scenes leader in the practice, but never an elected leader, the imaging center was directly across the street, and it was a partnership with the hospital, but the imaging center was across the street from a just-announced building of a hospital outpatient campus. And the hospital came to the doctors and said, you'll sell us that imaging center, right? And the doctors were like, I don't think so. Why would we do that? We're making good money here. So they decided they need somebody that could negotiate. They knew I could learn revenue cycle management and the other things, but they decided... And my brother-in-law tells a story. He says, I went to my partner, says, I've got just the guy. And one of the partners knew me and he goes, I know who you're talking about, the state senator. I go, yeah. So I had to go through a pretty rigorous interview process because they wanted to make sure that if it went south, my brother-in-law wouldn't, you know, he had to be neutral on this. Yeah, we had a very good professional and personal relationship, but he always stayed out of that. So I started working there the day after election day in 1992. So yeah, I went to work in radiology. Knew nothing about physician billing or radiology for that matter, except yeah, you go in and you get an x-ray or a scan or whatever it is. Yeah. Now you were with Lancaster Radiology Associates for 22 years. That's quite a commitment. What kept you there over that long? I think the continuing challenge, you know, I built trust. As I told you, I'd go where the physicians were and I could kind of carve out the position, which was important to me. And I was challenged with the opportunity to manage that vital relationship with the only customer they had, Lancaster General Hospital. It was just the right size for me. I was inspired by managing the business office staff who were great. I mean, the average staff person there had been there for 13 years. I mean, they were really dedicated and loyal people. So it kept me inspired. Barb and I had four kids. So the return on investment there was great. They all grew up in and around Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and a couple of them went to Penn State, and one to West Virginia and the youngest Indiana University. So we were able to provide a really nice life for them in Lancaster, PA. And practice kept growing. You know, by the time I left, there were 32 physicians there. I'm not a science guy. I love to read about it, but I didn't study it very well. But to stand in the interventional radiology lab is just one of the most interesting things I think one can do. (laughs) I'd be down at the hospital, I'd go into CT or go into MR and We owned the MR business, so I got to know how to buy and install an MRI machine. But to go into the IR lab and observe studies is really fascinating to me. Based upon your extensive experience, 
in running the radiology practice and working with a lot of radiologists, no doubt. What were some of the most consequential competency gaps that you observed in radiologists? And if you could, how would you revise radiologist training to help them overcome them? Boy, that's really a good question. I think one of the most important things for radiologists and physicians is that they need to focus on the things they were trained to do and trust. They need to find the person or the people that they can trust are handling the business side of it. I know that a lot of physicians today would say, well, I got to go get an MBA because I need to understand why X plus Y equals Z. One of the things that I respect about physicians so much is their ability to learn and talk about lifelong learners. But you had asked, you know, boy, 22 years, that's a long run. I go, yeah. And part of it was because those original 17 radiologists that hired me trusted me. And we went through some really tough situations, probably because I didn't know what I was doing, but I figured it out and figured out that to be good at what I did, I had to have a staff that was really good behind me and not be afraid to hire people smarter than yourself in a given area. And I kind of learned that from one of our former chairs of our radiology group was that he was never afraid to hire physicians that were smarter than he was. And he always said that. There is a lesson learned there. I don't need to be the smartest guy in the room. I just need to be the person to figure out how do I connect this person with that person. And I also looked at my role as being the critical person to maintain and grow the relationship with Lancaster General Hospital. The doctors need to grow that by being really good clinicians. But there's a business and administrative side of that, that ultimately the hospital president, vice presidents, and others may want to call me before they call Dr. Smith. From your perspective, it sounds like you really see a substantial separation between the management administration of the practice and the practice of the practice. In other words, I'm not hearing a lot of support for physicians that take on more aspects of the management? Probably not from me. I just think part of it is, in my mind, physicians need to be really good physicians first. Granted, there are physicians like yourself who have taken on very broad administrative duties, but one of the things I saw from 1992 to 2014 was that not every physician could be a hospital administrator here, folks. And what I saw at Lancaster General Hospital, and I think throughout the country we saw that is, my gosh, they started paying docs to do administrative stuff. and They need to be doctors, you know. They can't all be senior vice president of medical services for a particular product line. I've often thought about that, and I might be on the other side of that equation than some of the folks like yourself, Jeff, but it's a real balance we need to balance. And part of it is I probably served in that leadership role at a time when doctors saw that dichotomy. Hey, we're here to be doctors. Bob's our guy. Call Bob. He'll handle that. I love nothing better than a doctor to say that. Call Bob still. He'll handle that. I would say that the level of trust that you have described, that you've been able to establish with your docs and them knowing that you had their backs and were there to allow them to be doctors plays as much of a role in their being able to comfortably pursue the clinical side of things. And I think some of the pressures that come to bear on physicians seeking to step up to leadership roles is when non-medically trained administration isn't able to deliver the quality and the clinical environment that's best to serve the patients. 
Yeah, we were blessed in Lancaster that every administrator I worked with saw the value of capital investment. I mean, there wasn't a machine that they weren't willing to buy to help clinically. I think that's a tradition at Lancaster General Hospital. It was a place where they would invest in capital for physicians, and there was a great respect there. You know, I got to be part of that through the advancements of MRI and other things, yeah. Yeah. Now, what was the structure, the practice governance? Were you working with a new practice president every couple of years, or was the board and the executive of the group pretty fixed over an extended period of time? Yeah, it was probably an older model, but we had a shareholder meeting once a month. Every shareholder had a vote, and it was a lot of power invested in the president of the practice, who was also the department chairman. They don't have that model anymore, but they had that model for years. So during my tenure, there were five presidents in 22 years, and the longest serving was nine years. And one of those presidents went on to become president of the medical staff, so we had a unique opportunities with leadership within the hospital to be leaders. So there was a lot of power. We didn't have many committees. As I was leaving, they were developing kind of an executive committee structure because the practice was getting bigger. And that was a move in a lot of practices to do that, where you'd put more power in an executive committee, so to speak. That really was the structure. Now, when a new president was getting ready to step into the role, how would you seek to prepare them for that? First of all, you know, the first conversation is, hey, I've got your back. And they knew that. And the preparation really would be the walkthrough with the senior administrators at the hospital so they could be reassured and know that person. I discovered over the years the worst thing in the world for hospital administrations is a shakeup with a major group, you know, like a radiology group where they have an exclusive contract. That really makes them nervous. So one of my key roles was to allay those fears and say, hey, you know, this is a great doctor. So kind of be that person to open the door. I think that's important in continuing that relationship. They want to make sure there's stability in a medical practice like that and to show them that there is stability. So that's important. And then also to orient a new leader who may or may not be familiar with the complicated revenue cycle management process, which is a lot more complicated than a lot of the physicians might understand. So to bring them over and orient them to that process so they understand how does a bill go out? How does the cash come in? How do you apply the cash? How do physicians get paid? You know, when I started in the 90s, people thought, well, you know, those two ladies in the back room kind of do it all. Well, it's a little more complicated than the two ladies in the back room. Yeah. You're describing a lot of sort of nuts and bolts, bringing folks up to speed on a lot of the business processes. But I'm kind of curious from a leadership perspective, were your practice presidents always ready to step up to the responsibility, to the stewardship, to the politicking, the communication? Did you need to engage and redirect and prepare anybody? They all wanted to be leaders, so they were prepared for that. I don't think they were prepared for the politics that 30 physicians can have on the table. And I would be kind of like a chief of staff advisor to them. And we would have once a week sessions. They were given two administrative days a week. So I would have a morning that I would be in there and meet with the chair or meet with the president. And a lot of our conversation was the politics of the group. 
you know, the president would say, I want to do something. Who do you think's in the way? That type of thing. So those were very critical conversations. Now, during these years with Lancaster, you went back to school twice. The first was to earn a master's in management focused on healthcare administration. That was after six years of running Lancaster Radiology and many years of experience running other organizations. What did you seek to gain from graduate school at that point? Well, I thought I needed that degree. I'm a big believer in, you know, having that credential. And my wife went back and got her master's of nursing. And she said, now you have to get your master's. So she challenged me and the doctors wanted me to get it. And they were very willing to pay for that. And they did. They were very generous. Did you find that after all this practical experience and the work that you had done, that there were things yet to learn? Oh, yes. Absolutely. And it probably made me a better student. I'm a big believer. I think that's the Harvard model. (laughs) You know, you don't get your master's right out of college. Go to work for a while. You're going to be a better student. You're going to know maybe where your weaknesses are and your strengths. That really probably cemented me into that practice in a number of different ways. Learning statistics and the importance of data. I mean, those are the things that in the master's program really helped. It also really helped me expand some of my understanding of healthcare policy. There were a lot of hospital administrators in that program, so it helped me understand kind of the finances of a hospital better. So just the exposure to other folks is always informative and educational. That really rings familiar for me. I went back to get a master's in business administration after having 25 years of leadership experience and such, and I just found sitting in class having all these epiphanies, reflecting back on circumstances where you know, wow, I didn't quite think of it that way. Yeah. And could I have done that differently? Or geez, tomorrow I have a meeting. Maybe I'll apply this. It got to be close to a couple of professors there in marketing and in leadership. The study of leadership, you know, various types of leadership, that was really one of the most fascinating things in the program. Now, the second stint came six years later when you went to Harvard Law School for a program in negotiation. And after negotiating the Delaware State budget and undoubtedly many other contracts and business relationships. It was one of the most fascinating three days I've ever had. It was talked by the authors of the book, Getting to Yes. And there were like 500 people in this room and they would break us into groups of three and negotiate these three-way strategies. It was great. So it really cemented some of the things that I had done. And I wish I had known that before I had served in the Senate. (laughs) You know, some of the theories behind negotiation and the whole objective of everyone, not just getting their piece of the pie, but how do you make the pie bigger for everybody? It's not just, well, I get 25%, but you're going to get 60. You know, I don't like that. It's increasing the size of the pie for everybody. And geez, did that help me in the relationship that I was building with the hospital? Everything that came before us, opportunities, I always anchored back to that program on negotiation. How do we take this and make the pie bigger for everybody? And there were plenty of opportunities to do that with cardiologists over cardiac CT and cardiac MRI. And I mean, we developed all these interesting partnerships. That program really made me think that way, which was fascinating. That's really marvelous that it was essentially pursuing the integrative approach to negotiation, you know, and it's generally held that reconciliation through alignment of interests produces higher mutual satisfaction than one based on legal rights or power. And it's intriguing to me that a program centered in the law school focused on the interests. One of the guys I sat with, I go, what do you do? He goes, oh, I work for a company where someday you're not going to need to have your house appraised. You'll be able to go online and figure out what your house is worth. I mean, this is a long time ago. It was early Zillow, but I'm like, oh, wow, that's pretty interesting. And here, that's all we do, you know. <laughs> What's my house worth? 
and stressing the point that, you know, a big part of participating in these programs is the people that you meet and the conversations you have, a very, very important part of it. Right. I recall one of the most serious situations any medical practice is when there's a doctor that needs to leave for whatever reason. And we got to that point. And that program of negotiation helped me kind of mediate that separation. It was not a termination. It was a separation. And to be able to sit down with him and advise him in a way that got him to where I think a really good separation and advise our physicians. And I used some of the techniques and skills that I learned there to do that. And I'll never forget saying to this doctor, you do not want your partners to take that vote because that vote's not going to turn out in your favor. And that's not going to be good for your career. So let's figure out a way for them not to take the vote. People say, what's one of your successes? I say, well, I would consider that to be a success. But I can't be at that table without the doctors trusting me that I go represent them. And I think that's important for all of our RBMA members and leaders in physician practice management that they get to the point where they can do that, you know, be that person to go do that. And to be able to say to the hospital, hey, we got this covered. We'll take care of you here. And we did. After 22 years with Lancaster, you became CEO of Brain Orthopedic Spine Specialists, which seems like quite the tongue twister until collapse to boss. So you were the boss of boss. Oh, I guess, yeah. <laughs> what led to that gig and why such a brief one-year engagement? Well, I thought it was time for me to maybe explore other subspecialties. And the two neurosurgeons that were involved in that practice were friends and done some consulting work for them. And they pretty much recruited me. And I thought, oh, this will be the great end of my career. I'll spend five years here. <laughs> it didn't turn out too well in the end. There were a lot of issues in that practice that led me to leave there, but it was quite an experience. And I wanted an experience where I was actually managing a clinical practice, patients coming in every day. I thought that was kind of interesting. So it led to that. It was a very interesting experience. They think very differently than radiologists, I can tell you that. <laughs> what was the challenge? Just being able to reorient? Yeah. That was a big challenge. There were very strong personalities in the practice that were a challenge to manage. And surgeons have a certain way of doing things that are a lot different than radiology. That practice has since gone separate ways. The orthopods went one way and the neurosurgeons went another. And so maybe they weren't destined to be together for very long. But in concept, it really was a great concept, yeah. Now, after boss, you went back to government and you served as the chief clerk for Lancaster County. You were the chief non-elected official responsible for county government functions with a budget of $270 million, 1,800 employees, supervision of 21 department directors. That's a load. It's a load. How did that opportunity come about? Well, I always kept involved in politics, and I was on the school board in Lancaster County for nine years, which is an elected position. So I always had kind of this connection. One of the commissioners, I actually was his campaign chairman when he first got elected, and this position was open and I was available. And they wanted a chief clerk for kind of not a long period of time. And this particular commissioner was going to not run again, so I knew it wouldn't be a long stint. But again, they wanted somebody that could work with them and negotiate some things on behalf of the county with a stadium authority and some other things. And one thing leads to another, and I'm the guy. So it's a really interesting experience. And again, the county administration in Pennsylvania, the county's own prisons. I didn't run the prison, but, you know, the prison director reported to me. The warden reported up through me. They run all the social services, which is fascinating. They run Department of Aging. And then the court system, you know, the court system is managed separately, but there's a court system. You know, you get to know judges, you get to know prison wardens. <laughs> it really sounds like a huge enterprise to oversee. Any tales in particular from that gig? 
Oh, gosh. You know, there's always interesting tales that come out of the prison. A prisoner dies, terrible tragedy. You know, what happened? Probably one of the biggest challenges, we had a sheriff, an elected official. Sheriffs are elected in Pennsylvania who was on the sexual harassment scale maybe higher than others. So I was really involved with the investigation of that and all the tales around that. But again, I served with three elected commissioners, so I kind of, you know, serve at their pleasure, and that's a challenge because they've all got different ways of looking at things. The enormity of, you know, a $270 million budget in a county where the commissioners don't really raise taxes ever, and it's pretty much dependent on federal dollars and state dollars that are pass-through costs. So a lot of county budget are pass-through. So in terms of direct control, it's much less than $270 because so much of it is social services is coming through from federal and state, and they know where that money is going to be spent. So it's fascinating. But it was a neat experience for a year and a half. No doubt. So a year and a half and then another pivot to your current role as executive director of the RBMA, essentially downsizing your budget by about 99%. Was it your love for radiology, your frustration with the government? What led to that pivot? Well, my stint as chief clerk, we agreed that it was going to be kind of an interim thing and it was coming to an end. So RBMA had a change in management at the time, and nobody at RBMA realized that I had this background in association management from the 80s, early 90s, and I was looking around for the next situation. I was actually trying to decide, should I just retire or should I keep working five years ago? And again, I made a call. I called one of the leaders of RBMA. I said, hey, you know, tell me about this. What's going on? And did you know that I was in association management years ago? It was like, you were? I go, yeah. So decided to apply and went through the process. And for me, it was my enjoyment and recollection of enjoyment and leadership in the nonprofit world, the association world, and the ability to go nationwide. And that was really, for me, the desire at the time. And of course, the familiarity with radiology was, you know, that I didn't have to learn how to spell radiology (laughs) or understand what our members were going through every day. So it really gave me a lead from the other candidates that they had interviewed that I knew every day what our members go through with physicians and all those challenges. So it was kind of cool. I'd like to talk a bit about the Radiology Business Management Association. You have been a member for 30 years, past president of the association, recognized with the Calhoun Award for Outstanding Contributions, now executive director. For our listeners, would you tell us a bit about the RBMA and its mission? So actually, Dr. Calhoun was one of the folks from the ACR that started RBMA. And, you know, RBMA's history dates back to 1968, kind of an interesting year. Group of physicians met in Chicago at the Drake and said, you know, we can do our own billing now, but nobody knows how to do it. So they had these office managers. Most of them were female. One of the things I found interesting in our history, and we did a little video on that for our 50th anniversary, was that you know, predominantly male physicians hired strong women to manage their business offices. I've always found that fascinating. So basically, RBMA was formed so that the members could teach each other how to bill and collect independently. You know, what is coding? What is revenue cycle management? If you talk to our early leaders, they will tell you that. And our motto is progress through sharing. So to come together, at that time, it was on a regional basis, have meetings, teach each other about how to do this, you know, since that time, we've grown dramatically in programs and services, including advocacy. We never were involved with government relations until 
I was appointed the first chair of the Federal Affairs Committee back in probably 2007 or 8. <laughs> and why? Because Bob was a state senator. He must know about this. <laughs> but we've always been tied at the hip with the college. In fact, in our bylaws, the American College of Radiology appoints a radiologist to serve on our board, a voting member. That now is a Dr. Elaine Lewis in Reading, Pennsylvania. She serves on our board of directors. We work very closely with the college in a lot of different areas, not the least of which is in advocacy. And we're proud to bring some things to the advocacy table from the business side that I think are really, really helpful. So we were really proud to celebrate our 50th anniversary four years ago. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's a long time for anything, you know, and we continue to grow in unique areas. How many active members? We have about 2,200 active members. That's in about 800 radiology practice. So we've got room to grow. And I mean, for your listeners, if your manager or administrator are not part of RBMA, they really, really should be. And I know the leaders in the college are very strong advocates of that. Bill Thorworth and I are very, very close. He talks about Dixie Harris, his administrator in Hickory, North Carolina, you know. If Dixie said it was true, it must be true. You know, that kind of thing. So what is the state of radiologist and college collaboration with the RBMA at this point? I mean, with independent radiologists, do you see much engagement by radiologists being members and participating? Yeah, you know, we do. We see a growing engagement, maybe more on our virtual programs that have grown dramatically. We have this jointly sponsored practice leaders forum each year in January with the college and RBMA that is originally designed to bring teams of leaders from practices in for a weekend of training. And that registration participation has stayed pretty steady over the years. We get, you know, 120, 140 folks for a weekend to, you know, hear lectures and we have a joint planning committee, et cetera. So we're really excited about it. In fact, we're talking about maybe changing the name slightly to leadership as opposed to leaders. So it's reflective of you know, the growing body of leaders and the growing interest in learning about leadership is just critical. The other area of growth for us is in the focus on young professionals, getting people like I was when I was 39, 40 years old to think about a career in radiology management. I think that's critical. We have an aging leadership population in radiology, and we know that the next generation needs to be there. And we're very much focused on where do we find new leaders. We have our recently appointed diversity, equity, and inclusion committee. Now it was a task force last year. The board's moved it to committee status. And one of the reasons is, you know, we need a more diverse body of leaders to come into radiology to lead the next generation. So we're really focused on that. That's pretty exciting. What would a radiologist stand to gain by joining the RBMA? I mean, if a radiologist came up to you and said, you know, I've thought about maybe joining your organization, but why should I do it? What would you tell them? I would tell them, number one, you're going to meet a group of people that have been involved in the daily operations of a practice, and you're going to learn things from them and learn from other practices that probably you're not going to have that opportunity anywhere else. The college and the Radiology Leadership Institute offer fantastic opportunities. But with RBMA, here's a chance to meet non-physicians in an environment where you can really network well. You may not get your five CMME credits for everything you go to, but it's a way to maybe get that MBA without getting an MBA, <laughs> you know, having to make that kind of investments. I would say that. I have attended the RBMA Paradigm meeting and found it very worthwhile. I'm curious, what has been the impact of practice consolidation and the emergence of large national companies on RBMA membership and job opportunities for its members? Sure. 
First of all, RBMA has always employed kind of a big tent theory to membership. And where we clearly see the value of independent radiologists, the fact that a group is affiliating with a larger organization, there's real value there. We see real value in those organizations utilizing some of what we've learned over 50 years to apply to that organization. The fact that some big money, private equity money is out there reorganizing radiology and medical practice for that matter. It doesn't mean they know everything. I've always said this in terms of associations, especially of advocacy. The National Auto Manufacturers Association, there aren't many companies that make cars in America. It's less than 10. Now they've got all those suppliers that are members. You got Ford, GM, the Japanese guys, and Tesla and Chrysler, Mercedes-Benz. So small association, but very powerful. I see RBMA as being able to provide kind of the base of business knowledge, management acumen, advocacy in radiology, those maybe larger radiology organizations need to listen to and participate in. And they have participated and they've been very generous and we very much appreciate that. Excellent. So it sounds like there's synergies. The organization is pivoting to meet the needs of the large corporate entities. The corporate entities are happy to engage. Yes. One of the things we're really excited about is a year and a half ago, when we were all fighting the cuts to radiology in 2020, we were working very closely with the college on a strategy to fight these cuts. The college is so good in terms of their government relations work, what I call kind of the inside the beltway play. We felt strongly that we needed to develop a grassroots approach and energize the folks across the country to send the messages that, you know, not really the right time to be cutting physicians. So we developed a website, don'tcutdocs.com. We hired a PR firm that got some articles published nationally. And then now have kind of formalized that. We call it our Radiology Patient Action Network. So we continue that grassrootsy approach that enhances what the college and other organizations are doing inside the Beltway. And we think that combination really is working. We meet regularly with Cindy Moran and Josh Cooper and Ted Burns and the college's GR team. They meet regularly with us with RPAN. And the synergy back and forth has really been beneficial. That sounds really synergistic. That's terrific. Beyond advocacy, what issues would you say are top of mind for your members these days? Well, again, I spoke briefly about the diversity, equity, inclusion issue. We have a big initiative there in terms of focus on training our board and other leaders in that area that has a lot of growth. Just the continuing educational programs. We have a strategic education advisory committee that's charged with looking long range. And we have three education subcommittees, a program education subcommittee, which really is the committee that develops all of the sessions at Paradigm and our other conferences. We have an advanced education subcommittee that's looking at, you know, is there opportunity to develop a thing like a master's degree just in the business of radiology, and then a virtual education subcommittee that's just done a wonderful job the last two years expanding our virtual educational programming. Our webinars are legal, cybersecurity. I mean, I could go through the list, but they're very, very well attended throughout the year. So that is a real opportunity for practices to train management, administrative folks for a very reasonable rate. So we're really excited about that. And as I said, our young professional group, and advocacy. Those are probably our biggest areas of focus. And then part of my role is in collaboration. So looking for areas to collaborate both with the college and other organizations. A small example is I helped develop an organization called the Medical Imaging State Coalition. And a gentleman named Patrick Hope, who's the executive director of MITA, the Medical Imaging Technology Association, he and I developed this. It's a real informal organization. We meet twice a month just to share 
what's going on in state governments related to radiology. The college is involved, ASRT, the Society of Nuclear Medicine, all these organizations, and we just talk about issues in state government and where we maybe need to focus in state government, which is a huge deal in medicine. Among the many activities associated with your executive directorship, you picked up a microphone and started a podcast called A Word with Bob. We'll have to have you on, Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to join you. I particularly enjoyed a recent episode with Pat Kroken, More Guts Than Brains. A lot of cool insights packaged in a wonderfully engaging conversation. What led you to start the podcast? Well, you know, I had this idea before I came to work for RBMA. I said, I need to start a podcast. This was six years ago. I sat down and I opened my notebook and I wrote a list of like 100 people I could interview. And I thought, well, you know, in my spare time, I'll start a podcast. Well, you know, I haven't worked my way through that list of 100 people, but started with RBMA. And I said, you know, this is just a great way to share some stories. I find these stories like Pat Crokin's story. How did she get into radiology? And that's really the key question. How did you get into radiology? And everybody has a different story. A lot of the women I've interviewed have been just fascinating stories of women that were, you know, single moms or something critical happened in their personal life. And they thought, you know, I could do this billing thing. And they did it and they grew companies and became leaders in radiology business. That's fascinating to me how someone does that. And we've really expanded it two years ago in 2020, in March 13th, when the world shut down, we sat around as a staff and said, what are we going to do? And we can't have a live meeting. And I said, well, you know, Everybody has huge questions about what to do during COVID. So we started a Word with Bob Live, and we went six straight Thursdays and just, you know, payroll protection plan. What is it? How do you get money? How do you apply? We had an insurance broker talk about, you know, if you're not going into your office, you should be going to your insurance broker and saying, I need some credits because I don't have any risk. No one's coming in. So things like that of how to protect cash, because everybody was afraid of that during COVID, how to get more cash, payroll protection plan. And that kind of kicked it off. And now we do a word with Bob live once a month and have the recorded longer versions. Yeah. So it's really a lot of fun. What has been your biggest surprise from the endeavor? To me, the biggest surprise is that there are 50, 60, 100 people on a Thursday afternoon that will sit and listen to me. You know, <laughs> you might have the same thing. I've said to other people in podcast, oh, you know, I get 50 listeners and people say, oh, that's really good. I go, really? You know? So that's been the biggest surprise. That and people like to share their stories. For our 50th anniversary, we did a series of videotapes around six themes of RBMA history. And I hired a video crew and we went to the Practice Leaders Forum in Arizona and Phoenix that year and sat and interviewed all different kinds of folks that have been involved with RBMA. And really the stories that came out of it were great. I'm so glad we have that archived. So those verbal stories are just fantastic. And like I said, to have that archive forever is really a good thing. It's a dimension to share that is often inaccessible and being able to have people sharing their stories, such as you've done with us today, Bob, is a real gift. I noticed that last year you served as the president of the Lake Winoa Property Owners Association. Bob, do you do anything for fun other than running organizations? (laughs) Besides spending a lot of time with my wonderful wife and visiting grandkids and such, I've taken up bird watching here at the lake. <laughs> I've turned into this bird watcher, <laughs> which is interesting. I've figured out how apps, how to keep track of birds. And my staff laughs at me, but I've gotten fascinated with the migration of birds. So I'm looking forward to over the next month or so when they start moving north. So I've spent a lot of time with family. 
And yeah, I seem to get into an organization and people say, oh, you should be our leader. Well, it's great that you focus and get to spend a lot of time with your family. And so you have your kids and grandkids nearby to connect with? Well, yeah, they're all within three hours of us. We have a daughter, as I said, lives in Alexandria, Virginia, about three hours from here with a couple of little grandsons down there. She and her husband are both in education. And then we have a daughter and her husband live in Allentown, about an hour from us. And they have a granddaughter and a son in Allentown. And then a son and his wife live in New York City. So we get to go to neat places and visit. Try to do that a lot. And I find that I may be dad, but I don't have all the votes that I need at times. My (laughs) wife can get many more votes than I can. (laughs) And I'm pretty good at counting votes. (laughs) It was a lot easier to get 10,000 votes than it is to get five. You know, that's always been my story. (laughs) I hear that. Looking back on this incredibly rich blend of leadership and management activities, what stands out to you as your most rewarding moments as a leader? I get very humbled when I see my kids that want to be leaders, or they've said to me, geez, we're really proud of you, dad. Those to me are really big moments. You know, not so much to do, you know, you do some great thing, the Bob Still Bridge or something like that. It's not that. I think it's more just some of the small things you do through your career and the moments you think about that were maybe inspirational to some kids or to some young leaders. I very, very much enjoy my role mentoring our young staff at RBMA. A few years ago, I was at RSNA, and there were five physicians there from Lancaster Radiology Associates who I was involved in hiring, and now they're all leaders of that practice. I said, geez, I feel like your grandfather, you know? So that's rewarding to me. It's those little things through a career that are rewarded. And I'm going to tell you a Joe Biden story, you know, coming from Delaware. Everybody knows Joe. So Joe and I were leaving a Christmas function at some club back in the 80s. And I was going to a neighborhood association meeting, which in the state Senate in Delaware, you got to do that. So, you know, we're leaving and chatting a little bit out in the coat room. I said, hey, Senator, why don't you go to the Cranston Heights Civic Association and I'll go to your next hearing. We'll trade. And Joe has this big brother. I mean, he really is charismatic, maybe not so much when he's 79, but he sure was when he was 49. He said, Bob, you are at the heart of politics. That's really what it's all about. And he said this, he goes, nobody cares if I have a hearing about the Soviet Union. He says, nobody could care if I went to Russia. How prescient is that today? But he said, going to a neighborhood association, that's where it's at. And, you know, that is true. I mean, that was just true. That's the lesson about leadership. It's all about those one-on-ones or... You know, you run into the hospital president and have that conversation. You have that conversation with that physician that's having some issues, maybe personal issues or, you know, whatever it is. And you just try to redirect that so that they can, again, focus on what is really important that they do, which is read an image and offer the best diagnosis or best read they can offer on behalf of the patients. That's my recollection of leadership all the years. It's those little things that count. Beautifully stated. And Bob, I really have enjoyed hearing about your amazing career and life. You've contributed so much and such great perspectives. I can't thank you enough for joining us today on Taking the Lead. Well, thank you. And we'll have you on a word with Bob live and talk about your career or other things. Sometimes other things are more interesting. Please join me next month when I speak with Richard Duzak, Professor and Vice Chair for Health Policy and Practice in the Department of Radiology and Imaging Sciences at the Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. 
Dr. Duzak began his career as a diagnostic and interventional radiologist with West Reading Radiology Associates in West Reading, Pennsylvania, rising to practice president and chief executive officer just eight years after joining the group out of fellowship. After a three-year term, he moved south to practice in Memphis, Tennessee, before going all-in with an academic career at Emory University in 2014. In 2012, Dr. Duzak was named founding chief executive officer of the Harvey L. Neiman Health Policy Institute of the American College of Radiology, transitioning to the role of chief medical officer after one year. Most recently, he has served the college as council speaker and chair of the Commission on Leadership and Practice Development. Just a few weeks before recording our conversation, the public was informed of Dr. Duzak's upcoming move to the University of Mississippi, where he will serve as chair of the Department of Radiology. Taking the Lead is a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pasco, Senior Director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast, to Port City Films for production support, Linda Sowers, Megan Swope, and Debbie Kakal for our marketing and social media, Brian Russell, Jen Pendo, and Crystal McIntosh for technical and web support, and Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin, from the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. We welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N or using the hashtag RLITakingTheLead. Alternatively, send us an email at RLI at ACR.org. I look forward to you joining me next time on Taking the Lead. Taking the Lead.